are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. All right, good morning. So a quick addiction update before we get into our regular program today. Health and Human Services released a new buprenorphine practice update to expand access to treatment for opioid use disorder. This is really exciting, Paula. As most of you are probably aware, with the COVID pandemic, we have seen more than 90,000 drug overdose deaths that are predicted to have occurred in the United States in the 12 months ending in September 2020. This is the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period. And That was just ending in September. We're predicting that this will probably be over 100,000 by the end of this year. What they have done is they have added in an exemption to the buprenorphine waiver, and this allows a physician, a physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or clinical nurse specialist to treat up to 30 patients with buprenorphine without having to complete the traditional eight hours for a physician or 24 hours required for a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. And if a practitioner who does not wish to practice under the exemption and its attendant 30 patient limit, they may then go ahead and seek a waiver per the established protocols. Isn't that fantastic, Paula? I mean, this is something where we can really hopefully get to more access for patients and treatment. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, they've looked at some of the barriers for people accessing evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. And this is a response to that. Uh, There's only about 7% of people with opioid use disorder who access medications for opioid use disorder, specifically buprenorphine, naltrexone, or methadone. And being that buprenorphine is an office-based pharmacological method that can be started immediately as opposed to naltrexone, which you have to wait a period of time and and is therefore a little bit more difficult to um, access for the patient. This really does hopefully expand the access that people have, but it puts it onto the provider. So providers saying, well, I don't have time to do this training, which is the traditional route to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a schedule three controlled substance. This now allows providers to just go ahead and prescribe buprenorphine just like they do any other medication. So as providers, we prescribe medications all the time that we may not be very familiar with. And we use our data bases like Hippocrates or UpToDate or other online services that give us dosing information, guidelines, pharmacological interactions. And we go ahead and use those medications because they're indicated for the patient and they may be life-saving. And I think this is a great move on behalf of Department of Health and Human Services to make this medication available without requiring additional training and also acknowledging that this is a life-saving medication and waiting to prescribe this medication may result in a fatal overdose death in a large percentage of people while people are waiting to access treatment. So we're hoping that the number of providers in this country increases from a measly 7% to a much more reasonable number. And we encourage providers who are currently pre-contemplative or contemplative about prescribing buprenorphine to just start using this medication. Use your mentors um, in the community who do prescribe it if you're feeling anxious about it or use other resources online like the SAMHSA TIP 63, or you can have um, access to the technical assistance from the Opioid 
Response Network grant if you need more help in prescribing buprenorphine to patients with opioid use disorder so we can start tackling this problem before we lose more people to fatal overdose and some of the negative consequences that don't include death, but include skin and soft tissue infections, other serious infections, transmission of HIV, hep C, and just uh, destruction of quality of life for people who suffer from this really, really terrible condition. Thank you, Paula. I think you've summarized that really well. Again, if this is a medication you've never prescribed and don't have any training on, there are so many free resources out there where you can get training and one-on-one mentoring, and it's all available free. So check those out. And we have those links on our website. Welcome to our addictions update number two. We are going to review the use of methamphetamines in the U.S., challenges with meth use and treatment, and we'll discuss the history of pharmacotherapy and treatments for methamphetamine use disorder. We're going to present the findings of the January 2021 New England Journal of Medicine paper by Trevetti at all entitled Bupropion and Naltrexone Methamphetamine Use Disorder. And we will also discuss the treatment options moving forward. First, just getting into the background of methamphetamine use in the U.S. Paula, do you want to kind of tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, methamphetamine, any of us who live in the West, a part of the United States, the Midwest, the Rocky Mountain states historically, but also now folks in the Northeast and in the South are seeing a real uptick in methamphetamine use. We are no stranger to treating clients, participants in our clinics, patients for methamphetamine use. People involved in the criminal justice system are very familiar with methamphetamine. And even though there's been a very close lens on the opioid epidemic, methamphetamine is no longer in the background. It is becoming in the forefront of a very serious drug epidemic in this country. It's disproportionately represented in certain groups as well, Darlene, especially Native Americans and Alaska Natives. And it illustrates some of the health and racial inequities we have in this country. And it kind of replicates and mirrors what happened um, in the with the crack cocaine epidemic in the South and in the Northeast back in the 1990s. And there's a kind of a lot more to be said about that. We see methamphetamine rising. We see it rising steeply. We have a lot of organizations that are voicing concern about this. The NASDA study uh, from 2018 shows that 6.5% of people in the U.S have lifetime prevalence of meth use. And we know that overdose-related deaths relating or involving methamphetamine rose from 1.8 to 10.1 per 100,000 men and 0.8 to 4.5 per 100,000 women from 2011 to 2018. This is more than a five-fold increase. And this is data from NIDA. And uh, this was a big topic of concern as we look at the uptick in overdose deaths in general. So we're seeing overdose deaths increase in this country relating to opioids, particularly synthetic opioids. But what we're finding is that methamphetamines are particularly prevalent with opioid overdose deaths and as a category on their own. And there are unfortunate urban myths about the danger of methamphetamine. And that brings us to the next kind of topic, which is challenges with methamphetamine use, kind of why it's a problem, why it's such a problem. And I mean, that's a huge topic. But what do you think 
And what, what do you find in your clinical practice as being challenges to methamphetamine use? Well, it's very cheap. It's an incredibly potent and very addictive. It's just ubiquitous, right, Paula? And our patients have easy access to it, particularly what you see is our patients who suffer from homelessness. And we've talked about this in our previous podcast. It's cheaper than cigarettes. And it's typically a what we call a non-medical withdrawal. So they tend to have no, no access to care because there's not any defined treatment protocols for supervised or medical management for withdrawal. And there's poor options. This is why this paper is so important is in getting this data of trying to get some real treatment options. And so unlike opiate use disorder, they don't have good treatment options. And so they don't access care. Right, right. No, that's, that's exactly right. I think we have just like you said, I agree with you. You know, when I worked in private practice only, I hardly ever saw people presenting with their chief complaint of I want to quit meth. It just didn't happen. Yeah. And I used I think you see that right now. I currently work in a setting where I have a lot more criminal justice involved folks. I have people entering a very large publicly funded residential treatment program and they're entering and methamphetamine is actually the number one substance um, drug of choice. About 70% of our clients list methamphetamine as their DOC, although it's very rare these days to only have one substance of use. But in private practice, outpatient practice, people didn't always present saying, I really need help stopping meth. It was most often alcohol or opioid. And I think the reason for that, as you mentioned, is when you try to stop or cut back on alcohol or opioids, the withdrawal syndrome is so significant and actually dangerous in the event alcohol that you need or desire medical care to help ease the uh, withdrawal syndrome. Methamphetamine, once you have a physical tolerance to it, when you stop using it, you patients, uh, folks do experience a withdrawal syndrome. Certainly they experience dysphoria, extreme fatigue, depression, vivid dreams, and severe cravings, but it's not often enough to drive them into the medical system. Yes. What it does is drive them back to using because like most substances, the only thing that really fixes the withdrawal, well, that's not true, not the only thing, but what fixes the withdrawal is just use of the substance. And uh, they often just need supportive care to get through the withdrawal syndrome. So why they don't often access clinical care is their withdrawal is often just kind of a cold turkey withdrawal. So there are challenges, like you said, it's cheap, it's ubiquitous, it's the urban myths that I've come across are that meth will protect you from an opioid overdose. This is a really distressing myth. So folks who uh, are opioid users will start using meth to keep themselves awake, thinking that if I inject meth or smoke meth while I'm using heroin, I won't overdose from heroin, unfortunately they may develop an addiction to meth. The other thing that I've heard quite frequently is folks will use meth just as a survival tactic while living a life that is quite chaotic or unsafe or while they're experiencing homelessness because they need to stay awake and be hypervigilant while they're using other drugs or in a, an environment that's unstable. And then, of course, in and of itself, it's rewarding. It's, uh, it's very addictive, like you said, and then you're caught in that cycle. So, so there's several challenges with it, and we see it on the rise. 
What do we have in terms of treatment? Well, we do have some evidence-based therapeutic approaches. We'll talk about those at the end, um, specifically community reinforcement approach and contingency management. But in terms of looking at medications for treating methamphetamine use disorder, there are no FDA-approved drugs. There have been lots of medications of interest, and over the years, many medications have been studied, and it seems like sometimes there's a study that shows promise, and we use a medication, and we do have several medications in our arsenal that may help certain people. We just don't have anything that is FDA-approved, but we have several medications that have been investigated and may be helpful. We just don't have very strong evidence for any of them. Should we talk about some of them without going into the details? You know, like you said, none of these are FDA approved for methamphetamine use disorder, but these are ones that have had maybe some case reports or kind of acceptable use. And there's some more than others. And some of these we we have used, and then there's others that I have seen used by some other practitioners, either in our community or in other parts of the country. Some of the medications of interest have been antidepressants like bupropion by itself and mirtazapine. And we will be talking more about bupropion. And then there's some using actually more like a replacement like stimulants. So you have modafinil and then some lung acting stimulants. And so those are like your methylphenidate. Those are a little bit more controversial. And I have not used these personally myself. I have had some patients who've come to me who have been on them prescribed. And and I'll be honest, my personal experience with those have been seeing more patients co-using with that. And so I'll be honest, I even though those medications of interest, there's been some reports where they have maybe had some successes. My personal experience is it's been more co-use. And so I struggle more about recommending that. And, and I don't know, Paula, you'll have to chime in if you've seen any successes with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think because we do not yet have enough evidence and there's no FDA-approved regimen to use agonist therapy for the treatment of stimulant use disorder with a stimulant, we're just not there yet. And we get this question quite often as addiction specialists, uh, well, we treat opioid use disorder with opioid agonists with methadone or bup- uh, buprenorphine as a partial opioid agonist. Why can't we treat stimulant use disorder with stimulants, um, excuse me, with similar agonist therapy? We just don't have that approval yet. And it does seem to be a risk benefit kind of a decision. Uh, clinically, I again, have not had success with this. I've been very hesitant to do this. And the academic organization that I trained at and have come from and my mentor has steered me away from that. And I continue to do that in my own. And I have found that unless, you know, someone has true attention deficit, it's very difficult, obviously, to make that diagnosis when someone is in early recovery from any addiction, especially from a stimulant use disorder, because their focus and their attention and their concentration is so dysregulated. It's, it's, Everybody wants a stimulant, especially those with a stimulant use disorder. It's better to have a period of evaluation 
and use non-addicting medications to see if we can stabilize and, of course, focus on therapeutic approaches. Yes, thank you. I couldn't have said that better. The other medications of interest have been glutamate antagonists such as topiramate, naltrexone, also by itself, and adamoxetine. All of those, again, are just ones of interest. And I think I... Like I said, we have used all of those except for the stimulants. And so we've had experience in all of those. What this paper is combining the combination of bupropion, and this is with IM extended release naltrexone. And this is also we're putting together a a high doses of bupropion. And so this is a little different than what either of us have ever used before. So it's a very, it's a very interesting study. So you want to tell us a little bit more about kind of the method? Yeah. And so we're very excited and grateful that this study was published because again, there's a lot of people suffering from methamphetamine use disorder. And even though we've had lots of medications studied, bupropion and naltrexone by themselves, not in combination and We haven't had much success with methamphetamine use treatment. So this paper, excuse me, this study was a multi-site, double-blinded, two-stage placebo-controlled trial. The design was a sequential parallel comparison design. And what they did was they used injectable extended-release naltrexone, which is brand name Vivitrol. That's the only formulation of that medication at the moment. It's a 380 milligram injection. They gave this every three weeks. We'll tell you to which group they gave it to. The treatment group with oral extended release bupropion, 450 milligrams daily. So that was the treatment group. They got an injection of naltrexone every three weeks and they got daily Wellbutrin, basically, extended release bupropion, 450 milligram daily. And the inclusion criteria, basically the main inclusion criteria were patients with moderate to severe methamphetamine use disorder. The paper was basically, excuse me, the study was basically divided into two stages. In stage one, they had 403 people and they randomly assigned them, about a quarter of them to three quarters of them, the first quarter of them to receive the treatment, so the injectable naltrexone and the bupropion, and the three quarters of them to receive placebo for six weeks. It was double-blinded, so neither group knew what they were receiving. And the outcome was to look at uh, urine drug screens, which were checked twice weekly. In the second stage, uh, they took 225 people and those in the placebo group of the first stage, so the three quarters of the first group, who did not have a response, so in other words, they continued to use methamphetamine, were then randomized in a one-to-one ratio. So 50% of them were put into the treatment group, given injectable naltrexone every three weeks, or bupropion, 450 milligrams daily, versus placebo, again for six weeks. And they measured their urine and did a drug screen on them twice weekly. What they looked at basically was for negative urine drug screens over a two-week period with three of the four drug screens over those two weeks being negative as being a positive result. So you could basically go for two weeks in the study, and if you had one positive, but the rest of them were negative, you were considered a responder to the treatment. If you had more than one positive urine drug screen for methamphetamine in a two-week period, you were considered a negative result. So that's a basic overview 
of the study, the results of this study being, so basically it was a 12-week study, was that in stage one, so the first six weeks when they randomly assigned a quarter of the group to the treatment and three quarters of the treat, excuse me, of the group to placebo, 16.5% of the treatment group had a positive result. So 16.5% had three negative urines in a two week, every two week period, right? Is that how I understand it? Versus 3.4% of the placebo group. Then stage two, where they took the placebo group and randomly assigned them in a one-to-one manner into treatment versus placebo and gave them the same exact treatment, monitored them in the same way for six weeks. 11.4% of the treatment group had a positive result versus 1.8% of the placebo group had a positive result, excuse me, had a negative result. So when they looked at both of stage one and stage two, they did a weighted average for the study. It was 13.6% for the treatment group had a positive result versus 2.5% of the placebo group. This was the main results of their study showing a treatment, overall treatment effect of 11.1%, indicating that if you give Patients with moderate to severe methamphetamine use disorder, injectable naltrexone every three weeks, which is more frequently than most of us can give it due to insurance constraints, and extended release bupropion 450 milligrams daily, you ended up with a treatment response of about 13.6% for no methamphetamine use versus 2.5% no methamphetamine use with placebo. There's some side effects, adverse effects reported in the treatment group. Mostly they were gastrointestinal. People also reported tremor, malaise, hyperhidrosis, anorexia, and they did report some serious adverse effects in about eight of the 223 people in the treatment group. Is there anything else in the study we wanted to mention in terms of study design? The number needed to treat was nine. And I think it's Interesting. I mean, even though they reported the number seems kind of low of treatment response, I think both of us kind of see this was only a 12-week study. And often with methamphetamine use disorder, it takes a little bit longer to engage the patient in treatment. It'd be interesting to see if you could extend this out, what the response would be. And that is the 450 milligrams is also, that would be considered high dose bupropion. And that's not the usual. We often will see that when you use, when they talk about the anorexia, that and and some of the GI side effects, that is typically normal for high dose bupropion because that dose is typically what they're using for weight loss. That's a very common dose in weight loss clinics. When we are normally using bupropion, for instance, for depression treatment, you're you're not using that typical dose, correct, Paula? Right. Yeah, that is a higher dose. Just coming back to the number needed to treat of nine, I I think that speaks to, if we think about what the number needed to treat is for other common medications that we use, such as SSRIs or uh, anti-lipid medications, that is a fair NNT. Yeah, and actually even compared to medications for addiction otherwise, for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder, that compares as well. So the treatment effect size didn't seem super impressive at first, but if you look at the placebo effect, 
the placebo effect is 2.5%. You know, that means basically if we do nothing, if we just give people an injection and give them a pill, I mean, normally placebo has more of an effect than 2.5%. Yeah. So it just shows you how tough it is to treat methamphetamine use disorder, basically. So I think it's encouraging that any treatment effect is positive in this population, especially when you can combine it with other treatment approaches. So it's very interesting that we put a lot of weight sometimes on these medications, but we are doing wraparound care. If you look at this, if we look at medications going forward and how would methamphetamine use disorder work if we were also doing it combined with contingency management? Other things you talked about was the community reinforcement approach, crystal meth anonymous, and combining it with some of these others. Right, right. And so we just don't know that yet. And I think they, the authors mentioned that at the, in the discussion section of the paper is that they we need to see the effect of this medication in a more naturalistic environment. What happens when we use this approach in combination? And also what is the effect of these medications on women? Because it seems like a large, larger percentage of the subjects of this study were men. And we're still seeing men being the major participants of methamphetamine in this country, but unfortunately that's changing. And we're now seeing women uptake methamphetamine at a much higher rate than ever before. So we do need to study this medication in women, as well as other racial and ethnic groups. So those were kind of their listed limitations of the study was the study design and approach. And then, of course, they didn't include other psychosocial approaches and uh, the gender disparity. So moving forward with this approach, it would be interesting to see what what effect there is and if the effect is magnified. Yeah, absolutely. So moving forward. You know, what does this mean? What we already know about the treatment of methamphetamine use disorder is we know that contingency management works. Okay, that's like our our main kind of approach. And that's borrowed from treatment studies for cocaine use disorder. We've taken it and kind of used it for methamphetamine use disorder. Community reinforcement approach was developed back in the 1970s as an integrative plan to combine conditioning from therapy groups and the community environment itself to encourage people to maintain sobriety. So we know that these two different methods, which actually have some similarities, do reduce use. Uh, Well, what it does, what they've shown is they increase negative urine drug screens. So we continue to use these as a main approach to reduce methamphetamine use disorder. Obviously, we need to learn a lot more about prevention, early intervention, and then what specific treatments work. But I think this paper lends some hope in as a pharmacological approach. The challenge is getting injectable naltrexone covered by insurance. Have you tried to do this yet? Not for just methamphetamine use disorder. And like you said, many of our patients are coming in with co-occurring use disorders, alcohol or opiate, and also have a methamphetamine use disorder. Yeah, same with us. That concludes our discussion on the paper of bupropion and naltrexone and methamphetamine use disorder. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine, January 14th, 2021. Check it out. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
content of the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.